0: Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. First Samuel chapter 4. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Kophni and Penechaz, I looked it up, Kophni and Penechaz were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. Verse 6, When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Verse 8, Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? I just want you to note that. They went from God to mighty gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel, not 4,000, but 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, me, and, however I said the other one, died. Now, as you were reading along with me here, You might have been thinking about the statement I just made and and asking, well, why was it a bad idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle? And why didn't that work? I mean, after all, isn't that what Moses and Joshua did? Well, that's a good question. So let's look back and find the answer. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10 starting in verse 33. Numbers 10, 33. It says, So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now flip over to Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 2. Joshua 6, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Verse 4, Having, Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, March around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, and every man straight in. If you look closely, you see there's a huge difference here in what Moses and Joshua did as opposed to what happened at Afik. Number one, you see God spoke to Moses and Joshua before they took action. They didn't go out on their own and just do what they decided was the right thing to do. They heard first from the Lord. Number two, you see that they were obeying God's orders. He gave them specific directions and specific orders. And they were just fulfilling their part of the covenant of God. And number three, and I think most importantly here, they understood that that it was God doing battle for them, not the ark. Moses didn't speak to the ark, and he didn't even speak to the burning bush. He spoke to the person of Yahweh, I Am. They understood that it was God doing the actual battle for them, that it was not some form of magic in the ark. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember... That you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That was what Moses was telling them. The Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Do you see the difference? You see, this is a major sin that the Israelites were committing. And I think that it's due a lot to the poor leadership that there was in the priesthood at that time. Their priesthood had shown them corruption and disobedience. And these people had lost their connection with the personal God. And so instead, they were placing their trust in this situation and a religious object, not the person of Yahweh. In essence, they were breaking the first commandment. They were really in idolatry. And you know, this was an unfortunate but, but common sin of the children of Israel. Before Samuel was anointed prophet, there were approximately 300 years, the, the time of the judges, really was a time of, of great spiritual decay in Israel. If if you mark in your notes Judges 1.28, and you can even read more into there, but it says that God had instructed the Hebrews to remove the Canaanites completely at that time. And even though God would help them every step of the way, they failed to complete that order that God had given them. And they had left the door open by doing that. The door was open to following the false gods of other nations. And they began to do that. They began to worship the gods of the Canaanites, and the gods of the Canaanites. Well, let me just explain to you what they worship. They really worship sex, money, and power. I know you all thought I was going to say rock and roll, right? Because <laughs> that's usually what follows. Well, in a sense, maybe that was their rock and roll of the time. Judges two twelve through fourteen says they provoked the Lord to anger. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. They fell into great idolatry. Over and over again, the Israelites would do this. They would fall into this, this great sin. And over and over again, God would send a judge to try and lead them back to him. And, and sometimes they would. Judges 2:16 16 and 17 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. He would continue to do that. But it was this vicious cycle that they were in. The people of God had continually abandoned their faith and trust and their relationship with Yahweh. In this particular episode, you know, the point was proven by the fact that the priesthood had become so corrupted that Eli's sons could even serve in that capacity. It's really almost unimaginable. And so now when they should have been seeking the Lord and repenting of the lack of trust in him and lack of relationship they were having with him, instead they turned superstitiously to the ark to save them in a battle. Now if you look in verse five, you know, when it first appears, look at what happens. They're they're ecstatic. You know, it almost I don't know how many of you guys are old enough like me to remember this, but I remember when the Lakers were playing the uh, New York Knicks for the World Championship. And I think it was the sixth game, fifth game or sixth game, and the great center of the Knicks, Willis Reed, such a great player of his time, he was injured and he, and he couldn't play. And so the Lakers were all fired up, you know, and, and, and excited because he wasn't in there. But then in the second half, on steps Willis Reed onto the court. And you know, the the heads of the Lakers kind of go down and the Knicks are going, Yeah! Yeah! We're going to win this game now! And unfortunately for all us Lakers fans, that's exactly what happened. But it kind of reminds me of this. The the, the Ark came and they said, "All right, that's it. We're going to win now. We got the Ark! We got the Ark! They were ecstatic. And it says, they shouted so loud they were so fired up. You know, it it was bigger than the Super Bowl. The whole earth resounded because of their shout. It was so loud it even scared the mighty Philistines. And the Philistines were. They were mighty warriors. You see, it's interesting that not knowing God themselves, they had the same superstitious idea that the ark had the power. That it was all in the form of this box. And that it automatically meant wherever they went, then the God of the Hebrews would come and save the day for them and destroy their enemies. And that's why they were downcast. But... They rally their courage, and they rally it, motivated by the thought that they might become slaves. And they fight on, and you read what happened, 30,000 men of Israel die. All because of disobedience, disregard, and of because of men looking to assemble, not the person of God himself. Well, can you see the lesson that's, that, that's here for us? I mean, is it possible that we sometimes can look to something other than God, even something seemingly good, instead of God Himself? You know, I think we can pretty glibly say, well, yeah, we know, we, we don't look to worldly things for our answers. We, you know, we know we're not supposed to do that. We don't look to the wisdom of the world. We don't look to wealth. You know, we can all quote the verse, oh, it's not, you know, chariots and horses um, that are gonna see us through. We, we we see those because those are easily recognizable. But you know, the tougher thing to recognize is the same thing that they had difficulty recognizing. It's things that seem spiritual, things that seem to be the answer. And I'm gonna be a little bit blunt here, or as J. Vernon McGee would say. I'm going to get down to the nitty-gritty. Down where the rubber meets the road. As Christians, we can fall into this same trap thinking that we're worshiping, trusting God when we're not necessarily doing that. You know, we, we can put our faith in our methods. For example, we do things a certain way in our church and... God's blessing, look at what God's doing. And you know that may be somewhat true, but is our trust in faith that that is going to continue, because we trust in faith in the methods? Because we sing the right worship songs up there. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed when I hear some of these pastors say, "Well, we only sing hymns, because they're the only spiritual worship song. Really? Let me ask you this. Did you read the words of those songs that we sang tonight? But even us, we can go, well, we sing the more spiritual songs because after all, we do Chris Tomlin and Hillsong. Who do you guys do? We can put our faith and our trust in our methods. We can rely on church programs. Our church is growing. God's blessing because, after all, we have Truth Academy. I said that because a lot of you guys have been in there. We have 2B1 Marriage. We have Children's Ministry. We have this program. We have that program. and, And it may be true. God may be using those to bless. But are we putting our trust and faith that God's going to continue that because we have those programs? Do we think that God hears our prayers better than some other church? Or, or we're going to be more victorious in our prayers because after all, we have a cross up here in the corner. Now, have any of those things I said been bad things? Of course not. Of course not. But we don't want to put our trust in the fact that we have a cross and that Calvary Chapel has a, has a bird figure. Okay? Okay. We don't want to put our trust and faith in that. You know, speaking of the cross, when I was doing this, I, I, I have to tell you, I started thinking back to the old vampire movies. You know, the old Dracula movies, and he was coming to attack off your blood. You know, and so what did they do? They get the cross and they hold up, oh, ah, you know, as if there was some power in this little icon. It may seem silly to us, but guess what? Do you know that there are people in churches today that, and I don't mean to be offensive here, but they hold beads and rub their beads while they're praying and they say certain words and they believe that God's going to work because of those beads and because of those repetitive words. Or they have icons and that brings them closer to God. And again, I'm not saying any of those things are even wrong necessarily. But really, You have to have an icon or you have to rub beads to be closer to God. They're not God. Now, dare I say that we can even worship the Bible rather than the person that the Bible teaches us about? We need to be careful. Now, I say that knowing that you know me well enough to know that I place a higher value on the Bible probably than anybody else that you know. I love the Word of God. But it's the Word of God. It's the written Word of God to us. The Bible, it says it has power. But the power is not... You can't hold the Bible up just like you can't hold that cross up. you know. And and then there's power going out. There's power when it's what? Spoken. And people hear the Word of God and it leads them to a relationship with the God of the Bible, the person of God, and in fact, the one God in three persons. Okay, so now that I've offended all the Catholics and Greek Orthodox, let me get to us as well. What about those charlatans that we often see on TV selling their prayer hankies? And I use this to wet my sweat when I'm preaching, and God's anointed that hanky, And all you got to do is send 1995 and God will work in your life. I look at those people and I say, they're no different than the men of Israel were that we just read about. If they really believe even that that's the case. You see, they're treating God like He was some genie in a box. And in this case, the box was the ark that you could just rub it and then God would just do what you want Him to do. Now, we've spoken overall as the church body, but what about us as individuals? Do we sometimes treat God like that? Do we sometimes treat Him as though He should grant our three wishes? And then when it doesn't happen, we say to Him, well, God, why didn't You help me? Why didn't You do what I told You to do when I told You to do it? Ever had that conversation? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that sometimes we do that. God is a person, and we must worship the person of God. Not things that represent God, but the person of God. We don't want to make the same mistake that these people did. When we face our battles, we want to inquire of the Lord. We want to seek His face. It's good to get godly counsel from other people, but... The Lord wants to have a relationship with you. You know, so many times when I'm counseling people and and I try to just biblically give them what what I can, but ultimately, and I know many of you will attest to this, I tell you, look, you got to go to the Lord. And you got to get your answer from Him. You can take any of the counsel that I give you, but you go to the Lord. He wants a relationship with you. Your relationship with Him is just as precious and as close as mine is. And He wants to speak to you and have that relation with you. You know, also sometimes just like these guys, we might look outwardly spiritual in what we're doing. You know, we're going to church all the time. We're even serving in ministries. We're we're paying our tithes. But inwardly, we might be in rebellion against God. Maybe even as much as Eli's sons were. And then we still expect him to bless us. Again, when I'm counseling people in the office, they tell me, I pray all the time, but I'm not getting any help from God. I I don't know what's wrong. Then I ask a few questions and find out that they're basically living in sin. They hardly ever read their Bible. They don't spend any time in prayer other than asking for something for themselves. The lesson for us here is that God is not in a box. And He can't be and He won't be treated like some genie who we'll just grant whatever wishes that we have when we bring the box out. In actuality, God's a majestic, almighty King who deserves our worship and our honor and our reverence. And you know what else He deserves? He deserves to be obeyed. Now there's another great tragedy here and that's when we do this just like They did, here, we can misrepresent God. You see, the Philistines, they kind of had the same idea as the men of Israel did, didn't they? "Uh Uh-oh, here comes the box. And it scared them. But guess what? They found out that the Israelites were really misrepresenting God. That, you know, well, wait a minute, God isn't this box. Or if He is, you know, maybe He was sleeping in the box. Who knows? Um, But He didn't do what they thought He would do. So we don't want to give people a false impression of God by the way we treat God as well. Well, in verse 11, we see that God fulfills His judgment on the house of Eli. And if you go to Galatians 6, 7 through 9, as I said, this whole period of time that was in spiritual and moral decay, and then God pronounces judgment on the house of Eli, And Paul describes basically what happened here. In verse 7 of Galatians 6, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God will eventually pronounce judgment. Well, there's more to the story, so let's read on. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 4. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Again, that's a sign of mourning. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. Verse 14, when Eli heard the noise of the outcry. He said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Verse 15, Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he, meaning Eli, said, How did things go, my son? Verse 17, Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great slaughter among the people and your two sons also, Kophni and Pinnikos are dead and the ark of God has been taken. Verse 18, When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel for 40 years. Now I want you to note here that Eli did not fall at the mention of his sons being killed. I I think that he kind of expected it because he knew the judgment of God was going to fall and it would be very likely that that could happen in this situation. But what caused his reaction was the mention of the ark being lost. Now his daughter-in-law, verse 19, Penica's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the Church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at Corona, or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.
1: The end of 1 Samuel chapter 4 is really a tragic ending for Eli and his sons, Eli judged the nation of Israel for 40 years, but his sons died and his sons, you know, God wanted to judge them, and indeed they end up dying. And a report came from the battlefield to old Eli. He was 98 years old. And in verse 15, his eyes were set so that he could not see. And a man ran from the battle and told him, there's bad news. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. The ark of God has been taken. And it came about when he mentioned the Ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died. He judged Israel for 40 years. The falling back of Eli is a picture of what had happened to the nation. The Ark was captured. Eli's sons died. There was a great defeat, a great slaughter of the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden, uh, a season of time, some forty years, where Eli had judged the nation, but unfortunately had not really disciplined his children, they were off doing the wrong thing in the temple area and and things went bad, and eli 's fall on the the breaking of his neck was the end of an era. It was a message that God had sent. it was a warning that God had given, but it remained largely unheeded, and all of a sudden uh, there was darkness in Israel. And so, uh, here's what happens. It says, uh, Now, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she had heard the news of the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid for you have given birth to a son, but she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy ichabod for it says saying the glory has departed from israel because the ark of god was taken and because of her father in law her husband and she said the glory has departed from israel for the ark of god was taken and here we end chapter four with ichabod and this this uh terrible scene